Football Collective podcast. I'm Paddy Hoey of Edgehill University and today I'm speaking to Dr Lee McGowan. Lee is the author of the book Football and Fiction produced for the Critical Research and Football series, details of which can be found at the Collective's website www.footballcollective.org.uk. Lee's book is an encyclopedic journey through the novels and collections of short stories written about football and it's a tremendous read, very accessibly written and therefore perfect for both university libraries and to read on your commute in bed, or perhaps even on the lavatory. So, I hope you enjoy our chat, and I make no apologies for the multiple references to Celtic Football Club. That's what happens when a couple of immigrant tins get together. Where are you from, and what's your first memory of football? I'm from Stirling, uh, in Scotland, central Scotland. Uh, I've got I've got some mixed memories of football. Um, my, old, my old man left us when I was in my mid-teens. But I remember him taking us to see Stirling Albion and Dundee on a wet Wednesday night. You know, that was when they were up that's that's when they went to their their ground was called Anfield, um was spelt with two N's. Uh, and um, uh, but is it um, Bob Shankly was uh, he was a he was a coach. Uh, he was Stirling Albion's coach, you know, like Bill's brother. He was the coach of him and stuff, you know, and so um that that'd be or oh, that'd have to be like 81, maybe 82, something like that. I can't remember exactly, you know. My old man was barely ever at home. And then, um, but really, the, I think the game that sticks out most in my mind, and it probably wasn't even my first Celtic game, but it was a game when um, Celtic lost uh, 9-8 on penalties in the cup final to Aberdeen. Oh, no, I tell you, it was 2-1 Aberdeen. That was a different cup final, my first cup final. That was the 1990 Anton Rogan Cup final you're talking about there, wasn't it? Was so I was at that as well, right? I was at that as well. Um, but the 1984 one, I was, um, I, I was only 14. My uncle Brian took me to that. Um, and uh, I remember we got beat uh, 2-1. And on the way home on the bus... That was the day I decided that I really wanted to be a Celtic supporter. I'd pushed against, I'd pushed against the grain. Everybody in the family were Celtic supporters, and I was like, I wanted to do something different or be some, be something different. And then, but but that day coming home on the bus after the game, eh, just supporters bus, you know, that just made me go, ah, this is ah, like being at that, being in that amongst the Celtic fans was just so brilliant. Never, never felt anything like it. I felt like I belonged. You know, and so that's when I really became a Celtic supporter. Could you explain so the culture of football buses, particularly the Scottish football buses? Because I suppose if you're a Liverpool fan or an Evertonian or people who travel away in, in England, you might use the train as much as you use buses. Could you explain the culture of the football bus and its importance, its centrality to Scottish football culture? I will. They used to be... Um, uh, oh, they used to be named after the original form. I think it was like trams or something like that. They were called cabs or something like that. They were called in Glasgow, and they they came they come from that. I guess because of the diaspora of Irish immigrants in Scotland, then you'd see people travel from whatever pocket of Irish immigrants that they um, they went to Celtic Park. So, like, it, I honestly I think there was maybe. Eight or nine different buses went from various places, points of departure in, in Stirling. They all left from the same pubs every week, same people on the buses. I went, there was a Paul McStay bus. Eh, it was a really famous bus. Eh, it, still, it still goes now. My uncle Brian, his, his eh, eh, my, my, um, my, what is he, my cousin, he goes, he goes on that bus. Uh, but the bus we went from was from a pub called Gallicers down in, in the Ratwick in Stirling, where my mum and dad's families are from. And it was just, 
Um, that's where I got my education about Michael, who Michael Collins was, about the IRA, about um, the troubles in Ireland and stuff as well. So for me, um, being on that bus and travelling to the game every week, home games um, mostly, and then away games, but away games were early starts and everything, you know, away up to Aberdeen and all that. Um, that was the where the football, the mix of football and politics and the overlap between the two things really became... Um, really became ingrained for me, you know, like I, I couldn't see one without the other, even although you're at school with all your mates and, and they were all just talking about the football teams and I'd already started to learn about all this other stuff that was attached to it. Stuff that we were told we weren't allowed to talk about as well, you know, because the bus used to play the rebel songs and all that, you know, and when if we stopped by the police, we had to switch them off and all that, you know, like, so it was, um, that's how I learned what Bobby Sands was, all that stuff that was completely um, enmeshed, you know. Um, so that, that's where I think and, and then um, when the football wasn't on the, those same guys off that bus would take me to places like the Citizens Theatre in Glasgow and we'd watch plays like No Mean City you know Peter Mullen on the stage as a young fella and all that you know like just uh, amazing so the kind of my, my Uncle Brian uh, led me to an education not just in football but um, socialism uh, as well as the, the politics of, of the empire as well you know and who was your favourite player then? Who was the player that got you going first? Oh, Paul McStay, man. You know, Maestro? Like, just Paul McStay. He was just, uh, he, was, he was a player. You know, like, I think, like, uh, just, just, uh, when I think back about um, him as a player, I often think, oh, what, what a wasted talent. You know, he was surrounded by numpties at Celtic, you know, for for, for all that, that period of time, you know. But he, he was just like, a, he was like this Golden, a uh, golden fucking statue in the park. Do you know, like it was just it could do anywhere football. Could just do anywhere football. Knew exactly where everybody else was in the pitch. Could play a past him within an inch of its life. You know, he was just he was magic. Lifted everybody around him. Just absolutely brilliant. You know, like so. I'd say he'd he'd be one of my favourite players that I watched. And then and then obviously and then more recently, you know, watching the games from here in Australia, obviously Henke. You know, but. Just I, Paul McStay was probably my first favourite player. You know? We'll just let the, the, the non cognizant you know that Henke is Henrik Larson, the King of Kings. <laughs> as you sit there in your as you sit there in your Bill Shankly t shirt. <laughs> but anyway, so you're there that you're about to move to the University of the Gold of the Sunshine Coast. Sunshine Coast, that's Aye, great, and you've yeah. just been at the Queensland uh, University of Technology. And it's just there that you've written this brilliant book. It's the first book that's come out from the Football Collective. Well, one of the first books to come out from the Football Collective's own series for Routledge. It's called Football in Fiction, A History by Dr. Lee McGowan. And I've been through it. I've tanned it, as they say in Glasgow, twice already because I think it's a brilliant book. And so interesting for me, who's about to write a book for the same series on sort of cultural aspects of, of part participatory culture. Can you tell me... And it's a, it's 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 a really accessible book. It's a it's a book that shouldn't be kind of a, it shouldn't be a university library book. It should be a book that goes on general shelves. I think there's so much great stuff in it. Can you tell me what got you into your interest of football and literature? Where that first moment was, or what the the key books that you found were the most important in your education and looking at football in literature. Um, Luke, um, I've always been a reader. Um, and I've always loved the football, and my favourite stories were always uh, like your 
your classic comic stories, you know, like where the um, band of unlikely misfits, you know, overcome the odds and uh, and, and triumph in, a, in the face of adversity. Um, I remember reading a, a short story um, about a footballer who was so good. It was in a futuristic World Cup. He was, he was such a good player that the actual authorities, you know, rollerball style, you know, I remember James Cannon rollerball, uh, you know, he, the authorities, he, was, he had become too powerful for even the game, you know, and so um, they, um, they did some this ball, this kind of divisive technology, so as soon as he kicked the ball to take one of his magnificent free kicks, like a proto-Beckham-esque free kick, right, as soon as his foot connected with the ball, it froze him in ice, so that so that the, the team that the authorities wanted to win, and so, uh, and uh, after I finished my PhD, I wrote a blog article about it because while I was doing my PhD, I, I put a like a series of reviews together uh, on football books I'd read, and somebody actually wrote to me and said, "Ah, that story! I know that story. It's called this because I'd looked up for it for ages, right, and could never find it. And see, as soon as I, as soon as they told me, I was like, I'm not going to go back and look at it just in case it." ruins the memory of that story because that's really what made me go oh I'd love to be able to write stories like that do you know like I want to do that stuff my mate in Glasgow he's making fun of me he's like you just want to write football books so you can make yourself to be a better player than you were my guy do you know like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Says, did you write yourself in as the midfield maestro and all that because I was like same as I am as an academic paddy I, I, I'm a right back do you know what I mean or a left back it's my job to win the ball and give it to the flair player do you know what yeah, that's you're Peter Grant your your academia is Peter Grant <laughs> that's right that's right exactly do you know like nothing fancy just a like if I was a character in Animal Farm I'd be boxer I could lift heavy things for a long time do you know <laughs> But can, can you, before we get on to the specifics of the great sort of football books and the kind of cultural importance of them, can you explain why football, which has such a central role to play in the political, cultural and kind of quotidian life of Britain, actually occupies such a marginal place in the literature of the country? Oh, that's a question I've been asking myself for the best part of 40 years, Paddy, to be honest. I, I think, look, I think that the um, people who um, people who play football express themselves through the game itself, right? Um, the consumption of football is so all-consuming, especially now, you know, in these uh, these, these social media uh, bound times. Like you can never be uh, too far from, you know, like in London from a rat. You know, you can never be too far from football in your life through social media. Because um, if it's not the, the team that you're supporting, there's somebody talking about football somewhere, um, some kind of football. Um, so, I, so I think that's one of the reasons as well. But I think that um, uh, Brian Glanville, I've actually talked about this in the book, this idea that football has traditionally been a working class, uh, um, a working class activity pursuit um, has essentially... Um, um, meant that people who are from the writer's class, you know, the, the, this kind of this this notion that the, the only people who are from a higher class than the working class can can write about sport and write about football, you know, it, and could engage in it. So that, I mean, that's what we see in the nineties, isn't it? You get ordinary Joes uh, writing about the football, but I think it's more to do with the fact that it was something that people felt they could they, they could only participate in as a fan. Um, and not necessarily through 
something that was seen as a, a classic form of the arts and humanities in the in the writing of it, you know. And that section so you elevated above your status, status, you know. And that section in the book is you look you look at uh, Brian Glanville and Barry Hines, you know, and mm. Kez and that I think you actually call it as the angry young men. Is that 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 era of you know you've got an era of working class angry people writing about working class existence from the context of industrialization or urbanization and it becomes acceptable and you see the same thing happening in film with you know you know loneliness you know you think think about like you know Richard Harris and Albert Finney and people like that in drama and cinema and there's a great wee story called uh, the goalkeeper's revenge Uh, is that Stan Barst who. So, Bill, Bill Norton. Norton. Yeah. And it yeah. was a sense that if you read that book, there's a sense that you no know, football is just normal and therefore should be treated just as a normal part of, of everyday lives. But it's actually quite uncommon to see that other than in that period. Well, see, like, because uh, when was that? I mean, Norton book, that was in the late 60s, like 67, I think it was, right? So, like, the other short, the other short stories in that collection are, uh, not, there's not much football in them. Maggie's first like, reader. Fishing. Yeah, I, oh, was it? I do you know, like in the in the, like so that they're about life as well. So that kind of contextualizes football as just an ordinary aspect of, of life in the sixties, you know. And so I think that's what makes it such a beautiful story and such a, a lovely collection of short stories. That you know, that's that's um, that's a collection that's quite dear to me. That but that um, but there is that sense of that's when the authenticity kicks in. You know, like that um, when you have people like um, Hines talking about it because he was a good footballer do you know like he he did really well as a footballer so when you see his his take on the game um, and you see the football in his game he understands how those things were enmeshed together like I did how I started to realise on the bus he understands that but he has the gift to be able to put that on paper in ways that make it accessible to anybody unlike um, we've talked about this on through social media the um, Herb Resnikow Pele one where the football in it is just it's, it's clearly written by an American who's never seen a game of football in his life and has just tried to get Pele to describe it to him do you know like <laughs> and Pele's obviously described it to him as well as he acts in them adverts for it's atrocious it's yeah. absolutely atrocious you know and so so and so you can see where people who don't understand the game have real difficulty with a uh, with how to capture the game on paper and i, and I think that's um where glanville won because he's come out of that kind of um housing estate in england you know he's he's grown up with football he understands it but i think what the, his distinction between it being a working class pursuit and then hoping to produce a literary novel um, alongside um, all the other work that he was writing. Do you know, like, Glanville would have three different typewriters on his, at his desk, working on different things, and would just switch between them and just, like, write. Like, he was just a machine, right? But the um, uh, but that kind of aspiration towards writing literature uh, was, like, he'd already, um, in his mind, he defeated himself because he'd he'd made this bifurcation between the the, the interests in the, in the writing and the interests in the football. I think, um, but but now like anybody can write about football, can they? You know, like <coughs> I'm sorry, that I'm just to be just to be clear for people listening. Like when we talk about Barry and Hines, what we're talking about is Kez, and which Aye. is which is the the key novel of of working class, the key 
key piece of literature about the working class in late 60s, early 70s British cultural life. And, you know, if you ask anybody about Kez, you know, in popular in, in the popular kind of imagination, it's it's Brian Glover and it's, you know, a slightly balding Charlton and it's a kind of dysfunctional kickabout on a windswept pitch on the back of an old comprehensive school on a, on a moor side. History. And then, what's his name? Was it Brian? What's his name? The actor? Because, he, like, he, he makes that scene magical. But, like, Brian Glover. Book, like, that's, um, the book's a kestrel for a knave, the book's called, and Ken Loach, amazing film director, um, he um, he just turns it into some visual magic, doesn't he? But in the book, I think one of the reasons why I see that as a, a an important piece of football fiction is because of that twenty page scene, because it's the making of uh, it's the making of the character at the centre of the story. You know, it's we get to see him uh, push against the system. You know, well, this teacher. He wants to prove to everybody how good a footballer is, you know, vicariously imagining his dreams as a footballer while he's knocking over schoolboys on the school ground. You know, um, the wee fella sitting on top of the goalposts, you know, he's sitting on the crossbar, you know, like not even, or hanging off it, you know, not even really that engaged in it. But it's just this um, this sense of contextualising the game as a, a part of everyday life. Uh, Fucking Heinz is brown and that stuff. Yeah. And but actually, um, the book that he did before that, The Blinders, an even better book where it's actually about a footballer. Um, I think it was written the year before, uh, Kestrel for a Knave. And it's, um, uh, it's about a guy who struggles, you know, at a time where, where his mum and dad are like, ah, you're never going to be a footballer. What are you talking about? You're never going to make money being a footballer and all that, you know? So uh, it, like, it's probably even better. Isn't, and, um, it, um, um, isn't it interesting? Isn't it really interesting as well that those books are quite slim books, that publishing has changed? And so writers like that would produce a piece of pulp, pulpy type of fiction of, what, about 150, 160 pages? Less than uh, 200 pages, yeah. certainly, and one a year. And they were producing them for working class audiences who consumed this type of literature. Whereas maybe right. reading to a certain extent and certainly reading about football, if you look at the, the, the shelves and Waterstones, might conceivably be a much more middle class pursuit. Uh, well, reading always like uh, writing itself has always been seen as a middle class pursuit, isn't it? And then it's only just recently, in the last few years, where writers' festivals were um, where the changed from the domain of the middle class, a uh, middle class family who could afford to buy books. You know, so that like what you're talking about there's a. Um, yeah, that's a, there's a whole kind of popular cultural change around that. Um, and now that's the stuff I don't know the theory on. You know, like uh, um, I, but that you're talking about, uh, like that's just part of a much bigger systematic change that that came and that we see reflected through football writing. But but honestly, even before that, um, Robin Jenkins, which is my favourite football novel, um, his book The Thistle and the Grail, that was published in 1952, is is the best football novel that I've, that I've ever read. Right. It's um, uh, yeah, honestly, it's magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Um, Gordon Williams from Scenes Like These, another absolute belter as well. He miss about a, a boy that plays football. He works, he works as a farmhand um, uh, while he plays football in a wee town. I think it's, it's set in Ayrshire, I think, or a place like Ayrshire. You know, and it's, so I always, when I, when I read it, I kind of was envisaged um, Bill Shankly playing for the... Um, 
the Glen Buck cherry pickers yeah, yeah. and all that, you know, like so tough like that. You, you imagine that kind of hard face, these these miners just knocking knocking each other out of pieces on the football park at the weekend after having been down the mines, down the pit all week, you know, so um, it's, a, it's another bright one as well. Has there always been, I mean, if you look at the tradition of writers in Glasgow, uh, or sorry, in Scotland, you do have working class writers working in different genres for whom football is very important to them. So yeah. Val McDermott is, sees football as being very important. Ian Rankin has, you know, Rebus is is a big heavy, isn't he? Um, uh, same same as Irvin Welsh. Lots of Irvin, as you point out in the book, that football plays an important background to the lives of these kind of dissolute chancers who are doing ecstasy or drugs or whatever they are. Um, yeah. Do you think that there are regional? Is it a regional thing? For instance, there is a kind of movement of writers in Merseyside who have been using football as a means of sort of talking about culture and whatnot that's happened over the last 20-odd years. Do you think it's to do with Scotland, to do with Liverpool, to do with working-class places or post-industrial places, or is that too broad a, 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 an assumption to make? Um, look, I, um, oh no, that's, that's not something that, um, I've thought about, but I think you're spot on with the post-industrial stuff. Um, and you know, um, Adrian Searle he edited that collection in Scottish football writing called The Hope That Kills Us. You know, and so you know how they say that well, like football's the opium for the masses. That like that idea um, that um, like okay, so um, when football was still when football was played by the upper class upper classes um, in schools in the early nineteen hundreds. Um, there was a, a fair amount of resistance about the game being becoming professional because they knew that once the game had become professional, they would lose control over it. So they wanted to keep it as an amateur sport um, and and have that air of um, the aristocracy, you know, like this this kind of a pursuit of the gentleman. Um, and so I think that the the idea that people would be paid to play was. Um, was offensive to them, you know. They saw it as being abhorrent, um, because obviously, if if you had to do any pursuit to pay for your way or feed yourself or anything like that, you know, like that was uh, seen as as seen as beneath you. So, the the rise of professionalism in the early nineteen hundreds really uh, was what turned the game into a working class pursuit. And I like I fully blame Hornby for um, for that kind of. It's his fault. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean just. Like, hey Nick, it's your fault that the um, Sky um, BSB uh, stole the football from the the working classes in the nineties. It's not it's not him necessarily, but there is that um, there is a fair resentment for me, and that they've taken our game away from us and turned it into something that should never have been. Um, but so I think the the post industrial angle is absolutely it. I'm not sure if it's regional because I've read some more uh, recent self published. A football fiction, a boy called Paul Breen. Um, I've read some. I've not read all of it, but I read some of his stuff, and it's it's really um, based on that kind of housing uh, housing estate view of it in London. Um, so it's not necessarily a regional thing. It's I think it's much more about class and 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 the breakdown of uh, the manufacturing base in the country. You know. I was going to ask you a question about harm being in authenticity, but I won't. I'd like to turn maybe then to look at. The, the importance of the influence of Richard Allen and those subculture novels of the 1960s and 70s and the influence that they played on the emergence of hooligan literature, which is probably the, 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 the most dominant genre still. You know, if you look on Instagram, 
There are legions of 16-year-olds in Stone Island Tops who are pretending to be Danny Dyer in the Football Factory, which in itself was written by John King, who really talks about his debt to Richard Allen and those suede head and skinhead books. Could you talk us through the nature of those kind of subcultural texts and the importance they've had over 40 years? So, um, I, look, that, I think that's uh, really interesting because I, I think that the... Um, I don't even think that Richard Allen wrote the best of those those books. You know, um, the Moreland book, Albion Albion, is probably a more interesting book, to be honest, about hooligan fiction. And then there's another one called, um, oh, I talk about it in the book, but it's it's ter- terrorist terrors or something like that. It's called, you know, and um, we are. It's a much more interesting take on the on the skinheads. Richard Allen, you know, his pseudonym. I'm sure his name was Richard Moffat. Um, just was a pulp writer. He was a Canadian just, boy, wasn't he? Uh, he's Canadian, aye, and he just pushed out loads and loads and loads of books. Like, I think he wrote <coughs> books about about skinheads alone, you know, like, and what skinheads was, and I think what he was hoping to do was just cash in on the kind of um, flashy, underground violence, you know, and, and, and the drinking and the, and the sex and you know, and that stuff. So it wasn't even like he was um, looking to represent a subculture in the way that John King earnestly does. Um, he he was just interested in, in pouring words onto paper so he could make a living off it, you know. And it, so I think it's really interesting that they're held up now as these um, these these um, initiators of a movement, you know, in football uh, fiction. Um, King certainly... Um, breathe new life into them uh, into that, that sense um, but then I, I think Kevin Samson's books um, Away Days is a, a, um, a more polished look at it um, like I like that book um, what's his name Steve Redhead's the guy to read about this stuff he's wow. brilliant on this stuff around the hooligans you know like the late great Steve Redhead but I, I think that's one of the really interesting things um, as if you look at how uh, when King's books came out in the 90s, that pushback against the establishment taking the game away from people, you know, in the early 90s, you know, and the, the, the middle classes having to, needing to have a team as an accessory for their dinner parties. And, you know, like in King's book really pushes back against that. So it's not even, it's interesting that we look at this thing as a subcultural thing when actually, you know, they were probably sitting in the mainstream of working class culture, but seen as subcultural because the main, the, the the middle class mainstream had started to kind of they subsume the the football. So family and sure can make sense. Do you agree with them? There's a brilliant quote. It's not a quote. You do you do you don't you don't do it in, in you report the speech rather than use the quote. Uh, Hugh McIlvanny says that he denounces them as the writing of people like Nick Hornby as literary narcissism. Is that something that you would ascribe? Uh, something that you would agree with? Honestly, see, see when I found that quote, man, I, I honestly nearly wet my neck up laughing <laughs> because I, I, I just think, like, because I, I mean, I love, I love McIlvaney's work, man. You know, do you know once he once described, he said, um, George Best's feet are like a pickpocket's hands. You know, like there is yeah, yeah. a pickpocket's hand. And I was like, uh, like I love the work that McIlvaney. That, you know, what did he describe in that, in, that, in that show about Busby, Shankly and Steen he decided he said that football was the working man's ballet and these people were the great conductors 
Hagen. That's a very good impression of him as well. That's brilliant. I, I mean, I, I even I even thought his Ferguson book was reasonably good. You know, dry but but still good. But um, so um, so there is a bit of me just like like he was my granddad or something. Wants to listen to what he's saying. Do you know, wants to listen to what he's saying anyway? But he, I I do agree with it. You know, like that. I think that Simon Cooper's um, when I when I read his work. Uh, like it, make, it just makes me feel like there's a disingenuousness about it. Don't get me wrong, like he clearly loves football and he's really passionate about it. Uh, but when I read his chapter in Football Against the Enemy about the Celtic Rangers games, I was like, you've got no idea here, mate. Do you know, like, and not because I've been in them, but there was a kind of, there's an arrogance to think that you can go to a game like that and, and then capture that for people, you know? And so it felt like an appropriation of voice rather than. Um, rather than reportage, you know, or rather than kind of literary non-fiction, do you know, it was. Do you think that there's something to be said for addressing the adoption of football by broadsheet newspapers and by, you know, particularly when you see, you know, the New York Times, uh, British uh, broadsheet newspapers, you know, things like the the Spectator and the New Statesman and these kind of highbrow publications. Do you think there's a sense that they've adopted it, um, but they still don't really understand the crux of the game's real core set of beliefs and the game's real meaning to the people who still go to it? Uh, absolutely. Look at um, Franklin Ford's book, How Soccer... Uh, was it the How Soccer Explains Globalisation or something? I can't remember the title of it, right? In my head, I was dismissing it even before I'd finished reading it, you know, because I was like, this guy doesn't even understand what football is. And he was a football writer for one, it was one of those titles that you've just mentioned. He, he was a football writer, but it was like he'd never, he never understood what football was like. Do you know, like, he, he never understood what what football carried. And there's a, there's a sense of, I, I mean, I guess maybe there's going to be fans going to these games now who are only, who've only ever sat in a flashy stadium, you know, who've only ever. Um, we've only ever uh, bought a, a a hot dog in a badged paper bag, you know, like that have never been there and got served by the woman smoking a cigarette while she's handing you your pie. Do you know, like that? <laughs> a pie that's not even cooked properly. Do you know, like in, do you know, like that way where? Um, and I'm not saying that that's like that was a, a comic embellishment for the sake of demonstrating that. And I'm not saying oh. Uh, uh, a hanker for the old days and all that. It was rubbish standing in those terraces, you know, where you were like, you were half expecting the drunk guy behind you to pee down the back of your leg and all that. Do you know, like it wasn't, a, it, it's not like it was picturesque and beautiful and all that. But at the same time, there's a, um, in the kind of marketed cleansing of football as a sport, we've definitely lost something. So so maybe I'm being a bit harsh on, maybe I'm being a bit harsh on the likes of your Franklin Falls and your Simon Coopers, because they don't know about that stuff either. So they're writing about what they know, essentially. But for me, there's always going to be a sense of artifice in it, because they don't understand the game like, like we do, like I do. Like the people I went on that bus with. And it's also a sense of the kind of looking at these kind of you know look look at these Egypts look at the, look at these kind of uncouth, um, undereducated kind of people across the world. Look at them as a kind of sideshow or an exhibit. That's that's exactly right. That that, that is exactly right. And that um, so there there is always that sense of um, I the, the other. 
you know, like the other, because we come from a different class. In addition to that as well, the one thing that they all had in common, and this is where McIlvain nailed it, they're all writing about themselves. Aye. You know, like they're just writing about themselves. They're navel-gazing, and they're using football as a lens for them to have um, some kind of onanistic experience, you know? And so, like, rather than... But, you know, I, but, you know rather than... Um, rather than engage with like the, the cultural meaning and the depth of the meaning in that, you know, the sense of connection, what football can do for us, the power that football can have to make change in the world, you know, like all that stuff, they're not, they're just writing about their experience of it. And honestly, you can go to any pub in any housing estate in Britain and just ask a guy to tell you that without having to read 400 pages of um, eloquent uh, literature on it, you know, so... I think there, there are a few exceptions. I think David Winners in um, Brown Orange is pretty good. You know, it's a really good uh, look at football culture in a different country. Yeah. You know, and, and I think maybe maybe now, and I've only just thought about this, maybe it's because he is looking at something else rather than focusing on himself. Um, Goldblatt's book about Brazil has that same characteristic about it as well. There's a depth of cultural understanding in that book that he clearly understands. You know, but but having said that, like he's 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 a football tourist as well. You know, he's another football tourist as well. But um, but he, but he but he at least I think understands the game at a level that Cooper never will. Yeah, and we're not going to say too much about Goldblatt because we're inviting him on the podcast in a few weeks, so we love him. <laughs> no, honestly, his stuff's great. Like his stuff is brilliant. Like that, the ball is round. You know that that's an, that is an incredible piece of work, man. Just to to pull all that stuff together and to say to people. People here, this is here. Here is a history of football. Have at it, you know. Like, like I love that, and so so I do. I love the boldness of the Gold Blacks book in that. And plus, as well, man, what a piece of work, man. The amount of research that he's done for that book's just incredible. Like, brilliant writer you know, as well, so, isn't he? He can put a sentence oh, together. Yeah, yeah, man. Easy, easy reading. Like really easy reading. And there's no pretense like there is with Cooper. There's no pretense in that, you know. Yeah. You know, so I... Right, we're, we're coming close to the end because we're going to try and keep the podcast a bit shorter this time around. So can you talk us through the, the, the co-authored piece that you've just done on the Matildas on the history of Australians women's football? Because it seems like a really interesting project where you're finding old photographs in, in, in a... In what he called pavilions, and 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 you're piecing together like a, a a kind of longitudinal history of women's football in Australia, which is telling a, a massively different story than was once first presumed. Yeah, I, look, um, this has been a brilliant project. It was instigated by the two girls, uh, my two, um, twelve and seventeen. We've been going to watch the football together uh, for maybe four or five years, um, especially the oldest one. Um, and so we've been a. She's like. Um, she was maybe 12, uh, and we're at the game, and she asked me the difference between what, why women's football didn't look as good as men's football, because we'd be going to watch the club's men's team as well, A-League, the Australian National League here. Um, and and I sa- I'd said to her, oh, do you know what, darling, that's probably because, you know, the women work all week, they train a couple of nights a week, they don't get paid to play, they have to pay their own way to the games. And she was like, even, even to play in the National League? And I was like, aye. And I said, whereas the men get a full-time wage, they train a couple of days a week, they don't have to work in another job or anything like that. They've got physios, masseuses, dietitians, people cleaning their boots for them. And, do you know, even as I was starting to say, say this stuff to her, I was like, oh, this, is, this is not right, man. This is really not right. Do you know, like, it's not fair. And so as this kind of fat Scottish dad, you know, I was like, 
need to look at the world in a, from a different perspective here, you know. And so, um, uh, so I started to kind of uh, engage more in like what the developments were like around the, the women's game in Australia. And then the youngest came, and because she can't see anything go past her, she, like she's coming for the fish and chips at half time, right? But she said to me, "How long have women been playing football for, Dad? You know." And so I went and I discovered this game that took place at the Gabba. Uh, here in Brisbane, where they play the Ashes Test, the first Ashes Test, ten thousand people watched two women's teams play, nineteen twenty-one, right? And so that then led me to the work at Jean Williams, and you know, unpacking Dick Care ladies and Gail Newsham's work and people like that. And I was just like, going, this is unbelievable because as a researcher, I'm in the best position to answer both these girls' questions, you know. And so I spent the last maybe three years um, just raking through boxes of rubbish, you know, and just like um, like Trove, which is a digital archive of the, the, the news reports here on games and stuff. And I went and had tea with Jean Williams in her house. I was I was totally buzzing. I was fanboying, you know, sitting in front of her because she's bright. Her work is brilliant now, you know, like, and then, um, and just kind of, uh, so built up this kind of historical knowledge. And then a, a girl who I supervised a PhD uh, she's looking at activism. She's looking at author activists for a PhD. But she's like, I met her at the Homeless World Cup when it was here in Melbourne. And she was across, she used to be the media liaison officer for the Matildas. So with me having this historical background and then her, her having a, a, kind of, a much more contemporary view of the issues and stuff that were affecting uh, affecting women's game here, it seemed like a, the, a natural kind of step in the process so it's so she's done some work for the project already and um, and just um, through the Women's World Cup there we, we scored ourselves a contract last year he wrote it finished it they actually asked us to give them the manuscript on the 1st of July and we were like the World Cup final's not until the 7th could you maybe give us a fortnight <laughs> so we could at least include the results uh, you know like in the, in the thing and then I so we delivered that to them on July the 14th and because they were obviously keen to have it on the bookshelves here for in time for Christmas Matilda's are Australia's number one sports brand you know they're wholesome they're punching well above their weight. They're our, they're our most successful football team here, you know. And so we just we are, and obviously it'd be the same, it'd be the same over there. Um, there's this brilliant wave of exposure in the mainstream media to women's elite sport, you know. So we've got this national cricket league where the women are getting paid a, a full-time wage. It's not the It's not a brilliant wage, but it's enough for them to be able to. You know, like have a family, they get sick pay, you know, like all that stuff. They get their medical bills paid for them and stuff like that, as well as making a wage. So, like, we've got a long way to go yet, but we're starting to see these changes happening uh, in uh, in society. That we, our books just landed at a perfect time as well. We were just, I was doing the right thing at the right time. And all I was trying to do was answer my wee girls' questions, Paddy, you know. So, I feel like uh, like a 17 year old girl's posting about the book her dad wrote man <laughs> that's, that's Bob Dick man that's, that's me now I, I could retire as a dad mate so how, was the, how was the Women's World Cup because I we, we came back we were in Brittany me and my wife were in Brittany on, on holidays for a week and we came back via uh, La Havre and obviously there had been a couple of games at La Havre and there was a lot of Americans coming over because they were finishing their holiday yeah. off by going to London and you know, doing three days around London and flying back. And they were kind of disappointed that outside of Paris uh, and a couple of other places, 
Um, they said rain. You could tell that the tournament was on in that city, but in Le Havre, they didn't feel as if anyone knew that the that the games were on. Did you have a similar experience that in some cities? Uh, well, there was a say. So we were in Paris. Uh, uh, we went to the opening game in Paris, and it was absolutely bright. It was sold out. We got sat next to these PSG fans, and it was absolutely freezing, right? So you imagine my girls just landing from Australia uh, into that, biting cold wind, cutting them in two and all that, you know. Um, then we were up to Valenciennes in the north, right, on the border with Belgium. So we're in a, in a, a Belgian pub, you know, like after the game was finished, which was brilliant. Then we went to Montpellier for a week. Then we were in uh, Grenoble, Nice, and then Lyon for the semi-finals and the finals. So it was... Um, and and there was that when you're speaking to people, uh, just your local uh, French people, there was a sense that they had not much of an idea that the tournament was on its way. So I don't know if FIFA had done much to promote the tournament, and I think maybe France was caught by surprise about how, how popular it was. There was ma- massive contingents of fans from all over the world. After you know, like the the contingent of the Australian fans was unbelievable. There was thousands of Australian fans there just for the tournament. You know, like it was incredible. Um, and so, like if you compare that to the 2011 World Cup when it was in um, Canada, I think no, 2015 World Cup was in Canada, and it was just friends and, and family members who were with the teams. You know, the 2011 one was in Germany, and it was literally just the players' immediate family that were there to support them. You know, and so if you think over the course of two World Cup. Uh, two World Cups. You've you arrived at a point where the, the um, stadium in Lyon was sold out for the America versus England uh, semi-final, and then rammed for the final. You know, like that's you're sixty thousand people, man. These games, no bother. So, and the, and like the games that we went to were all were, were well attended. As well attended as most EPL games are. You know, outside of the big clubs, obviously outside of the top six clubs, you know. So it's um, it's really it's really things are changing. They're, they're Spurs this season, the women's team in England. I think this year in twenty nineteen they've had five crowds at their home matches that have exceeded thirty thousand people. So the so the women's game's on on its way, you know. And I think one of the reasons why I like it is because it still has that sense of community. We when we go to the games here in Brisbane. You get between two and four thousand at the game. After the game, the players come over to the side of the park. Kids can all get autographs. You know, like you can engage in conversation with the players and all that. You know, and so, and then and the fans themselves are there because they love it. The players play mostly because they love it. You know, like they're only just starting to get to a point where they can make wages off it. So it still has that brilliant sense of being what football is really about for me, instead of the kind of cartoonish level that the EPL is at. I can't even watch the Men's World Cup. I couldn't even watch that last one because I just thought it's not even... I think the Brazilian World Cup really killed the Men's World Cup for me. You know, with all the stuff about them changing the laws of the game so they could have beer in the stadiums and building that stadium in the middle of the jungle, you know. John Oliver described it as the most expensive and largest birdhouse in the world. Because <laughs> it's not it's never gonna get used for anything else now, you know, like and so so that kinda that kinda sickened me about how FIFA works as an organisation and the fact that the women's football have got to this point without much support from them at all, you know. Is incredible, um, and so and I think that that's um, one of the things um, that's made me interested. That the 
the social justice community engagement angle in that for me is what's been really, really important. Like, I, like as a football supporter, like I, like I love that I have one team, Celtic, and I love them, um, and because I, as I say, the, the sense of community and socialism and social justice was all enmeshed into that, right? And 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 activism and politics and all that stuff, right? Um, and but outside of that, for me, football, if I, like I. Um, really struggled to settle in in Australia and I met these guys uh, one of them came into the pub that I was working at the time and he said do you want to come play football son you know and I was like I, I, I'm not I'm, I'm an enthusiastic player at best Paddy you know I was never <laughs> any great shake on the pitch you know I was like a good right back or a good left back but um, and he said no no come you know and it was this, it was the saving of me you know because going and playing football with these guys some of them were cracking players back in the day, you know, they, they were they were still had the touches and all that, but it was really that sense of community and football gave us that, you know, and so and I wasn't the only one either, because we were playing this league here on a Friday night and we played against a team of Indian guys who, who immigrants who'd come over from, from one suburb. Then we played against the Norwegian students who were all studying at Griffith University here in Brisbane another week. Then we play against these English boys that, that drank in the Britannia pub. You know, like another week, you know, and it was just like this kind of miniature United Nations tournament. So I, w- I wasn't on my own in that, and I think that's the gift that football gives us, you know. So um, there you go. Lovely. Thanks very much. And uh, I'm sure we might talk again in this podcast in a year or so's time whenever you get more work out. I will. Hopefully, um, I know I'd, I'd love an opportunity to do some stuff with you, Paddy. That, that, I'd love to work with you, mate. So thanks very much for having me on. I think the podcast a brilliant idea. And thanks so much for supporting the two books as well. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. Not a problem. Hail, hail.